Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Welcome to another episode of Supply Chain Next, and I am beyond thrilled to have a new friend and colleague, Jim Tompkins, here uh, on, on the podcast today. Good morning, Jim, or good afternoon, good evening, depending where you are in the world. Uh, good day, Richard. Good day. That's, hey, there we go. There's a, there's a good way to start things now. Uh, uh, proper lexicon uh, adjustments here. Good day. That way you got everybody. Uh, well, Jim, jump right into it. Um, um, you know, you you come with a background that is all things supply chain. To say you're a thought leader is an understatement because you've been a thought leader in supply chain for decades now um, and numerous amounts of books under your belt, you know, consulting in the area. So without further ado, Jim Tompkins, We'd love to hear a little bit of your origin story going all the way back to, you know, how did young Jim, right? You know, and maybe you've had some reflection now on that. How did young Jim, looking back now, get into supply chain? You know, what was what was the path that took you there from, from, from school on? Well, it's uh, it's a young Jim is a long time ago, but I, I can still remember pretty well. Okay. So I um, was an undergraduate student in industrial engineering at Purdue University. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a course on facilities planning, which was really about, um, if you will, the supply chain within the four walls. How, how does material flow inside the building? And I really, really enjoyed the course. I did very well in the course. And um, I got an A in the midterm. I got an A in the final. I got an A in the project. And then I went to check my grade on the door. They used to hang the grades on the professor's door. I went to check my grade and I got a B. And I thought, boy, that's why I knocked on the door. And uh, Dr. Rudell Reed was the professor. And um, I said to him, Dr. Reed, I, I think there's a mistake on my grade. He said, well, why is that, Tompkins? I said, well, I got an A in the midterm, and I got an A in the final, and I got an A on the project, so I thought I'd get an A in the course. He said, well, let me look. So he picked up his grade book like they had back then, and mm-hmm. he looked. He said, oh, yeah, you got you got the highest grade in the class on that midterm. And Oh, your project was marvelous. It was it was really good, and you got an A in the final. He said that's that's really good, and he said, and then, and then you got to be in a course. I said, well, how does an A and A and an A average a B? Yes. He says, Tompkins, you've got all A's in industrial engineering here at Purdue, and I don't think anyone should graduate with all A's. So I gave you a B just to kind of teach you something. Oh, good. And I said, and what am I supposed to learn? He says, Tompkins, you know better than your classmates. He says, now if you want to prove you're better than they are, they want to get your master's. But if you stop after a bachelor's degree, you're the same as everyone else. In fact, he said, how's your interviewing going? I said, interviewing is going well. And he said, you're getting good job offers? I said, yes, I'm really, really pleased with that. He said, are you going get, to get more money than they are? I said, no, we're all getting about the same kind of offers. And he said, so there you go. He says, you need to go for your master's. He said, you know, if you go for a master's, you get double the amount of industrial engineering that you get with a bachelor's degree. And it's only one additional year. I said, Dr. Reed, I'm married and my wife and I have been married for six months and I'm, I've committed to her that we're going to go out and I'm going to get a job and we're going to make money. And so that's what we're going to do. I said, plus I couldn't afford it. He said, what do you mean you couldn't afford it? He said, I'll pay for it. He said, I'll pay for your, your housing, your room, your books, your food, your living expenses. He said, I got it. I want you to come and work under me for your master's degree. And that's why I gave you the B. I said, well, I, I'm not sure that would work with the wife. He said, well, here, here's the deal. 
This is how much money you'll make on a monthly basis. I'll pay all your books, all your tuition, all your room and board. Everything's covered for you and the wife. Plus, you'll make this on a monthly basis. Is that of interest to you? Mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, then come come work with me and master talk to the wife. She said, yes. I got into the master's program thinking it'd be one additional year. In that year, I really understood this whole bigger picture of back then we called it logistics or industrial distribution or material flow, whatever words you wanted to use. With. And it really seemed fascinating to me. I got stung by the research bug. So when I finished my master's, I then stayed on for my Ph.D. And I got my Ph.D. And, you know, in undergraduate education, it's basically passing courses. But when you're master's and Ph.D., you really dig in and really, really learn about what the field is about. And Dr. Reed was amazing. He was a great mentor. In undergraduate, I probably spent maybe an hour a semester with him. In master's, I spent like three hours a week. For my Ph.D., I spent two or three hours a day with him. And I was like sitting at the feet of the master learning about what today we call supply chain. Well, I was just absolutely enamored and happy and excited because I decided this was the field of the future. And as a Ph.D. industrial engineer, I was going to become a professor and I was going to teach this stuff and have others really get what was going on. So. I spent a little time in the Army. Then I came down to North Carolina as a professor at North Carolina State University, Mm -hmm. taught facilities planning, taught industrial logistics, taught physical distribution, loved what I was doing. But um, three years, and at the same time, I started a little consulting firm on the side, Mm -hmm. a little consulting firm on the side called Tompkins International. Three years later, my wife pointed out to me that my part-time income was six times larger than my full income at the university. Mm-hmm. And so at least this is my story, Rich. My wife might have a different story here, but my story is I then decided to leave the university and right. make my life's work what today we would call supply chain consulting. Right. And so we started to grow the company. It grew pretty good. Um, we added a whole business in uh, material handling integration. And then we later added a business in robotics. And then we later added a business in in physical distribution. And so over the years, by 2020, we had built a very large company that was really, really doing well. Mm -hmm. And we were one of the premier supply chain consulting integration companies in the world. Mm -hmm. We, We were, you know, I don't know, over 300 people and, and, and growing and making money and prospering. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit due to a bunch of different circumstances, I decided I no longer wanted to be a consultant. So I left Tompkins International. It was the company I founded. Mm -hmm. I was the chairman of. I was the second largest stockholder in the company. But I left it and went and started a new company, Tompkins Ventures. Where Tompkins Ventures is still a supply chain-based company. But now we're looking at the even bigger picture of how supply chain impacts the organization. Mm -hmm. And so we have practice. We have five practices at Tompkins Ventures. We have a practice in industrial development. We develop the buildings that we used to design. We have a practice in raising capital for our clients. We have a practice in logistics, which is the third-party logistics, transportation, ocean, air, truckload, less than truckload, parcel. We, we have a business in technology, and we have a business in leadership. 
My view is if you have these five things, if you have leadership, if you have capital, if you have buildings, you have you have logistics and you have technology, you have a company. So these are the things that Tompkins Ventures works in. And what we have is we've got 81 business partners around the world, literally China, Indonesia, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Africa, Dubai, Saudi Arabia, Israel, Europe, UK, all of South America, Mexico, Panama, US and Canada. We've got 81 partners that are folks like you and me. We have uh, we we have white beards, not gray beards. <laughs> and, and, and so what we are is we've got a lot of friends and network. And what we do is we talk to these folks about how can we help you with these five problems. When they come up with a problem, we take their problem with our 10 internal experts at Tompkins Venture. We evaluate the problem, say, who's best to solve this problem? And so we find the commercial partner that's best to solve that problem. We take the capital partner that's best to solve that problem. We take the consulting partner that's best, and we put the partner together with the client, Mm -hmm. and we help them solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And then we get paid not by the client, but we get a finder's fee which is equivalent to their sales and marketing costs they would have had for the commercial partner, the capital partner, and the consulting partner. Nice. That's how our business is. Today, we're averaging about 1.7 new opportunities a day. Wow. And so this business has just grown, and it's the power. There's an old law called Medcalf's Law. Sure, sure. Yeah, Medcalf's Law says, you know, if the greater the number of people who participate in the network, the greater is the value of the network. Correct. Well, after starting in June of 2020, Tompkins Ventures, by March of 2022, we hit critical mass. Right. And we hit critical mass, the opportun- 1.7 opportunities to help people in mm-hmm. these five areas a day. Mm-hmm. And so we're solving these problems. And we're, we're, it's just unbelievable what we're able to do at Tompkins Ventures. And then we added Tompkins Leadership so that we could invest in the technology to enable organizational development. Right. So that's what we're doing. And and the reason I, I really love this supply chain thing is the same reason I'm still working. To be honest, I'm old enough and I've made enough money I could retire, mm-hmm. but I love the supply chain. There's right. so much new learning. Right. It's so broad and so deep. Every day, every week, I'm learning something new. And I just love that. Yeah. So, I don't still work because I'm hardworking, dedicated, any of that stuff. I don't work for the money. I work because this is fun. I mean, this is so exciting what's going on in supply chain. I just love what I do. And I think other people are making choices for supply chain that's making the profession even more significant and having a bigger impact. And I just really love it. So been doing it since the late 60s, still doing it today and full speed ahead. Well, first of all, I, I mean, I was having my coffee. I don't need that anymore because your energy is infectious. So let's just start there. Secondly, uh, um, I, I think you gloss over what is a in, in, an illustrious career, and you know, you you also kind of also kind of go go talk about certain things. But timing is everything, and being at the right place, chance favors the prepared, or chance favors the prepared mind, depending on how you want to do that. And I mean, let's be honest, you couldn't have been more timed. I mean, whether you were thinking ahead like this, you know, but pre-pandemic landing where you landed to develop the firm that you've developed is a testament to what you've been doing for three, four decades on top of being at the right place at the right time with the right solutions, right? And, and everything is supply chain now. So, so I mean, amazing. So, but I do want to kind of scroll back a little bit and line up a few things because again, I think your career 
is is also kind of inexorably tied to the evolution of supply chain. I mean, you 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 went through a number of things here, so I'm going to go back into kind of decades look, but if you are just getting into your supply chain chops in the 70s, let's say, right? And you found yes. Tompkins International, if I'm not mistaken, that's pretty close to the same time that Dave Anderson over at Accenture was getting kickstarted, right? And I'm sure He's a colleague, right? Um, and he also pioneered like yourself, but he did what you did for Tompkins International. He did for Accenture about the same time. And then he fired up Supply Chain Ventures back in 01. And you fired up, you know, Tompkins Ventures in whatever, you know, uh, 2019, right? So a little bit of a difference, but also, you know, different times, right? I mean, I think at the time of investing, Dave was kind of looking, you know, was really doing something that no one else was doing. He's probably 20 years, you know, ahead of the curve. You're landing right when everything is supply chain. And I mean, I can't even imagine the amount of opportunities coming your way right now. So the question I'm getting to is, when you look at kind of the decades and the evolution, the 70s, and then Eli Goldrod comes around in, I think, the 80s when he wrote The Goal, if I remember correctly, or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. He kind of got the Toyota away. So he got the 80s kind of, like the 70s is almost like supply chain is just coming into its own for whatever reason. The 80s kind of begin to process engineer a little bit, driven by the Toyota, Lean, Six Sigma, all that stuff that came out of the 80s. Then the 90s are kind of rolling around. The internet kind of comes and does its thing. And then all of a sudden we get to you know, the, 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 the decade of 20 to 20, 2000 to 2010, 2010 to the pandemic. And somewhere in those 20 years, all of a sudden supply chain comes back. The question is, as you look back on that, there's some big meta trends that were going on at the time, right? Like how supply chain kind of moved in and out like I was talking about, right? Supply chain in the 70s was just becoming a new discipline. You were at the forefront of that, driving that discipline into not only academia, but the organization. There was some formalization, you know, by Eli, uh, kind of with the goal in the 80s. And the 90s and early 2000s dominated by the internet to some degree. So people kind of lost focus on supply chain. Then all of a sudden, 2010 to 2020, you kind of, kind of, you know, again, internet implosion, what's going on, pandemic hits and everything's supply chain again. So there's, there's a, almost like a narrative in there that your career has paralleled. And I mean, not only am I fascinated to hear kind of how you reflect on that and some of those mega trends that were going on, um, but th th that's really, it's an open-ended question. It's like, as you look back on those decades, you know, how do you track your career against the way supply chain is developed? Because it's quite eerily similar. Oh my goodness, yeah, Richard, that that is an absolutely great question, and um, I love it. And and in fact, um, if we had a bottle of wine, we could at least spend three hours on that question. But but all, I'm looking all at the have, clock, Jim, going, we an hour's not enough. I, mean, I can spend the whole day here. Absolutely, I tell you, the, um, the 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 term supply chain wasn't even used in the 1970s, but it's essentially what we began talking about. We we realized in the 70s that flow inside the four walls of a warehouse or flow within the four walls of a uh, a manufacturing facility was just the beginning of what we then called the material flow system, which today we would use the word supply chain. Mm -hmm. But what we focused on in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, um, and, and by the 90s, we did have the term supply chain. What right. we focused on is efficiency. Right. How do we take cost out? And so every supply chain discussion, with, no matter what term we used in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, was about cost reduction. How do mm -hmm. we take transportation costs out? How do we take manufacturing costs? How do we go to a low-cost country? How do we expand the logistics network in a way that's not going to result in high levels of inventory? So it was cost reduction, cost reduction, cost reduction. 
Then sometime around, depending upon the company, 95 to 10,005, there became a second E. The first E, efficiency. The second E was effectiveness. We understood by having good supply chain, we could not only reduce the cost, but we also could increase the revenue. So it became an effectiveness thing. If we did a good job of delivering the product to the customer in a timely fashion, in an efficient way, we also get effectiveness, we could increase sales. Mm -hmm. So we now, in, in 2005, 2007, we were fully engaged with efficiency and effectiveness, low cost and increased revenue. We were really focused on profitable growth. The growth of the company through effectiveness, the profitability by reduced cost for that growth. So mm -hmm. profitable growth was the theme. It stayed like that until officially in year 2000, when COVID hit, is when we all of a sudden in the profession found respect. The first right. R. Right. And so in 2020, all of a sudden people started, you turn on the news, they talk about supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. My wife came to me and she says, you know, it's interesting. We've been married for 52 years. My wife and I have been married 52 years in 2020. Congratulations. And she came to me and she says, you know, I have spent 52 years explaining to our friends, to my friends, to your friends, to our kids, to our grandkids what it is you do, and no one gets it. Right. She said, but I got a call from Maria. And Maria, that's my wife's girlfriend, she called her and she says, I was just watching the news and they were talking about supply chain. Isn't that what Jim does? And my wife said, yeah, that's what he, she said. Oh my goodness, that's real. Right. They're talking about it all the time. Right. And she said, and by the way, is that, is it Jim's fault we don't have toilet paper in this store? Right, of course, of <laughs> course. So now it's our fault. But right. all of a sudden we got the first R. So in, in 2020, it was EER. And then in 2021, 2022, came the second R of the issue of resilience. Mm -hmm. Because what happened in 2020, the supply chain failed. Mm -hmm. it, it fell to its knees. Mm -hmm. Now, we got to put that in perspective as well. In 2018, I was doing a study of disruptions. I, and I, the, the thought I had is, holy cow, it seems like every time I turn around, there's a hurricane, there's a bankruptcy, there's an M&A, there's a labor strike, there's a, 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 a this, that, that and it, it doesn't seem like um, everything's normal. Now, am I just getting older or is this really happening? So I went back and looked at history and what I found in 2018 was a disturbing trend. There were more disruptions of larger impact in 2018 than in any time in, in recorded history. And so there were disruptions where the bankruptcies were crazy and, and the cost increases. And so, so the world became a crazy place in 2018. I continue to study that. And, and, I, and I did a video on that in November of 2018. It's still on YouTube. So you can go back and watch what I said. In June of 2019, I resurfaced the term VUCA. VUCA yeah. was invented by the Army, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Yep. And VUCA is how I labeled the world. And I said on a video in June of 2019, 2020 is going to be the craziest year in history. There's going to be more disruption than we've ever seen in the history of the world. <laughs> well, then in February and March of 2020, when COVID happened, I had people calling me up and said, Jim, you predicted COVID. <laughs> now, 
uh, I, I didn't know what the word pandemic was. Right. I had, in fact, I came home from a convention the first week in March and my, I, I came in the door. My wife said, how are you? I said, I'm fine. She said, okay, you, you got home from Atlanta? I said, yeah, I got home from Atlanta. Yeah. I said, what's wrong? She said, we're going to lockdown. And I thought, oh, great. Is that a lockdown? That's a new restaurant. <laughs> I, I thought right. we were going out to eat. At a right. Of course. Of course. And, and she said, no, no, no. We can't go out of the house. I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, this COVID thing. Well, I had heard about this COVID thing, but I didn't have any impact on it. But what happened is when, what, what, what is, what was the impact on supply chain of COVID? Well, starting in January of 2020, the factory of the world shut. Mm-hmm. China closed, first of all, for New Year's holiday, because everyone went home to the place where they grew up. But then they couldn't get back to work because they were locked down. Mm-hmm. And so what we wound up with is eight weeks of the factory of the world shut. So every company in the world had a shortage of material and parts and sometimes mm-hmm. finished goods. And so the supply of the world closed for January and February of 2020. Mm-hmm. What wasn't closed is people in China got on airplanes and they exported not materials or parts or components, but they exported the virus. Right. The virus traveled by air. The parts traveled by sea. What got to the rest of the world first was the virus. And what the virus did is they resulted in lockdown of the world, which resulted in impacts on demand. Okay, so first we had the the shock, no supply. Mm -hmm. Then we had the shock of changing demand. And then what we wound up with is everything up, down, open, closed, open, closed, ports, full, blah, blah. We wound up with lead time. So the supply chain worked great, except for we didn't know what the supply was. Mm -hmm. We didn't know what the demand was. And we didn't know what lead time was. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? If you don't know supply, you don't know demand, you don't know lead time. You don't have a clue how the supply chain can work. And so the supply chains just crashed. And so when the supply chains crashed, what we said is we need resilience. Mm -hmm. And so we have EERR, efficiency, effectiveness, respect, and resilience. And that's where we are today is we are now trying to build supply chains that have resilience. And this has allowed us to look at how we need to do supply chains in the future because it ain't like it was before. 2020, 2021, 2022, today is not 2019. 100%. In, in, in fact, in 2019, we all came to work with an assumption mm-hmm. of certainty. Mm-hmm. We're going to develop a forecast. We're going to develop a business plan. We're going to develop a budget. And then we're going to make an execution plan that's going to allow us that budget to come true. Right. We expect that budget to be 95% true and 5% false. Right. right. But then COVID happens and we move from a assumed certainty to today, which is known uncertainty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We go from a 95-5 world, 95 known and 5% uncertain, to today we live in a 595 world. 5% is known, 95%, we don't have a clue. Right, and so that right. is a totally different issue. And in fact, in some cases, we, we even have to change the term supply chain. And, and you know, because it is not a series of links. Correct. Correct. And so it's, it is now a digital network, which has lots 
that's totally different from what we were in right. 2019. For. So it's a brand new day. If someone today is doing the same thing they did in 2019, rest in peace. Yep. You got it. You got it. I mean, you know, so, so it's been, there's been the first 50 years of my career was the seventies through the twenties. The second 50 years has been since 20 to 22. Mm-hmm. And in the last three years, we've had 50 years of, oh my, my. Right. And, right. and that's well, so cool. It's so yeah, cool. Well, I mean, it's, it's it, number one, I mean, again, I could sit, listen to you for hours, but immediately as you started going through kind of the prognostic prognostications you're making in 2018, I all of a sudden immediately go to foundation series, Isaac Asimov, Econo history. I'm like, all right, dude, are you, are you Harry Seldon? And I just didn't realize it, you know, the main <laughs> character, like you've got an economic model, you're predicting the future. But I want to go back to the fundamental thesis that you made, because again, the black swan events, obviously everyone's talking about that, the shock values, you know, are there more, there's, there more, there's certainly more change going on, but let me, let me go at the foundational kind of thesis that you make. And I'm not going to challenge it. I agree with it. However, I think there's a correlating factor, which is the human population size. Unlike historically, we've seen, you know, where human beings, effectively, we started building a system, right? And an integrated pre-internet, whether we like to believe it or not, we started to develop a cohesive global system. And unbeknownst to us, supply chain was driving that because you mentioned it. The whole world actually started naturally organizing where manufacturing started getting consolidated, a la China. That, that, but that's a system level kind of almost you know, natural event that occurred that almost most people don't recognize that happening. And then once the internet connected everything, and then the shock came because of the population size, we no longer can isolate ourselves, right? So are there mm-hmm. more shocks? Or is it that now we sense the shocks globally every time they happen? Whereas before they were distinct, you know, events that occurred in isolated populations. And therefore we could kind of discount them. You know, if it happens over here in Australia, the people in Louisiana don't really need to know about that. That doesn't exist anymore, right? When it's when someone sneezes in Perth, right, they catch it over in Lisbon. So Rich, again, a great, great, great question. Um, the answer is yes. Yeah. Number one. There's more shocks. Right. And number two, they're more highly transportable. Yes. Because of the interconnectivity of the world. Yes. You use the term black swan. Yes. Um, black swans is a, a really great book, but it needs to be placed in the context of two other great books. Um, one, the other great book that I like is, is the book on uh, tipping points. Yeah, sure. And another great book I like is back going to back 1980s, Joel Barker on the business of paradigms. Mm-hmm. I believe these three books are connected. <laughs> In fact, I believe the first thing that happens is a black swan. That's a disruption. Yep. Okay. A disruption takes place and some of the time, that black swan just kind of dies off, or some of that time, that black swan results in a tipping point. Mm-hmm. When it results in a tipping point, and interesting enough, the tipping point, the philosophy of tipping points actually started with pandemics, <laughs> okay, where you, you, you have a disruption, and then that disruption is a problem, it's a problem, problem, and boom, it's a huge problem. 
And so right. a tipping point is when a, a, a problem really grows. Mm -hmm. And then when the tipping point grows substantially, you reach a paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. Okay. In fact, I wrote a, a book recently came out called yeah. Insightful Leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And insightful leadership is how do disruptions, black swans, beget tipping points that beget um paradigm shifts. And right. that that is huge. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing an increased number of disruptions. Mm -hmm an increased number of disruptions that turn to tipping points and an increased number of tipping points because of the interconnectivity of the world right. that begets paradigm shifts. Right. And so if we look back in the 1970s, there was a paradigm shift once every 10 years. Right. Today, there's a paradigm shift once every 10 days. Okay. And Jim, I, I, I'm going to jump in on that really quickly because I don't want to lose this one, but it, 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 what you just said, which I think is so key because you're starting to think we're almost kind of recasting Jared Diamond's poem, you know, guns, germs, and steel. If you remember that guy, that was sort of yep, the, yep, yep, you know, yep. the, the, the look at humanity, right. Over mm -hmm. a hundred, couple hundred thousand years and the events and things that shaped why we migrated the way this feels like an extension of that book where we're looking at these events as you just outlined. So my question actually, before you go past it too quickly is where you said there was these paradigm shifts every 10 years, say during the, 1900s or to you know uh, uh, 20th century. Previous to that, if we kind of again take the historical look, if I go back a thousand years, I, I'm thinking those paradigm shifts get longer in duration, right? Because we're seeing a concatenation or a shortening of the paradigm shift, you know, uh, uh, time deltas, which then correspond to all these tipping points and things that are going. So, so the rapidity of change encompasses everything you just said. And it's only getting faster and faster and faster the more we interconnect ourselves, right? Yes. yes. The impacts are greater because of the interconnectivity. Right. And, and that is what's resulting in, I, I used to, back two years ago, I used to call 2020 the greatest decade of disruption. Yes. And my my secretary would always, re, re, you know, change that statement. She said the 2020, the most impressive year. And I said, no, no, no. 2020 from a point of paradigm shifts was a decade. So yes. then she would write it 2020s. Apostrophe, the decade. I said, no, no, no. The year 2020 had a decade's worth of paradigm shifts. Right. And and so now this is interesting because. If you go back in history, that's certainly true. But there are times in history when the interconnectivity was growing stronger and stronger mm -hmm. and similar things happen. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the Bronze Age, back right. in you know 1200 BC, mm -hmm. the Eastern Mediterranean, a, 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 a body of land from Italy to Afghanistan, from Turkey to Egypt, what we found was an interconnectivity mm -hmm. of raw material, of manufacturing capability, and of agricultural capability, right. where this portion of the then known world became totally connected. Mm -hmm. And the Bronze Age was a, an age of tremendous prosperity, of tremendous paradigm shifts. There was more innovations and excitement going in that time frame. And then something happened. No one knows for sure. Some thinks it was a flood. Some think it was earthquake. Some think it was famine. 
um, something that was people's war, probably a combination of all those things. But what happened was the equivalent of COVID-19 of 2020. And what happened is that interconnectivity fell apart. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. when that connectivity fell apart, we went from the Bronze Age to the Dark Ages. Right. And then we stayed in the Dark Ages. And now in 10 years, we made about 10 years of progress. And then 10 years, we made 10 years of progress. And that continued. In the 1970s, it started to speed up a little bit, 1980s, 90s. And in 2000, the mother of all black swans Okay, I mean, if you're thinking about a black swan as something, you know, like like this big, a little plastic black swan, the black swan of 2020 is the size of this house. Right. Right. And this black swan said quack, quack. And the world vibrated and it, it, it became so large that things that we knew were no longer true. Right. And so it changed. If if we look back, you know, in 2010, what were people doing? They were implementing. ERP, Enterprise right. Requirements Planning. Right. What is the worst thing you can do from a supply chain point of view is take an enterprise view. Right. You cannot solve a supply chain by looking at what's going on in the enterprise. I said when I started out, I began inside the four walls. What's mm-hmm. enterprise software? It's the four walls. Right. right. Okay. And so what we did is we went backwards. Okay. And, and so now what we've done is we've just gone way, way, way beyond it. And the use of artificial intelligence, the use of machine learning, that, that my profession, I'm a PhD industrial engineer. What do a PhD industrial engineers do? Mm-hmm. They optimize major problems. Mm-hmm. Okay. Guess what? Optimization is obsolete. Right. Optimization says, let me define an objective function and I'm going to minimize it or maximize it. And that will be the best solution. That's what we're going to do. And that's going to head forward. We're going to gain the greatest ROI by following this path. Well, guess what? You don't even get that path started. And the assumptions you made in the optimization are incorrect. They're wrong. So we need to replace optimization with optionality. So, okay. so, so I, I say, Richard, you got three strategies, A, B, or C. Which do you pick? Right. You know the informed decision is? Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do, I, I need a solution that can do A, B, and C, because I don't have a clue right. which one is going to happen. Right, right. And I can do optionality if I use artificial intelligence and machine learning. And therefore, we now are in the digital age. And it's so, so, so cool to take the stuff we did immaculately well five years ago, digitize it, and then change the way the world works. Well, I, again, word infectious comes out because I'm listening and I'm just, all I want to do is just sit here all day and go through this stuff because there's literally we could bounce around on a gazillion topics. But I'm actually going to kind of fast forward a little bit because you teed this up which is now drawing on a contrast between, I'll call it uh, previous, and, and it really is almost like supply chain 1.0. I mean, I look at everything pre-2020, pre-pandemic as supply chain just emerging. And post-pandemic is we're now facing a truly different view of, and, I, and again, I hesitate to use the word supply chain because it's no, it's an, it is a global system that fuels the $100 trillion economy, which is running, that number's running around now, with 100 gigatons of stuff, and that data 
100, the 100 trillion is the aggregate GDP. You've seen that number float around. That's the aggregate world economy as we see it. And then the 100 gigatons of stuff, that's the, that's the data that comes out of the world economic, I'm sorry, the um, uh, economy group, um, circular group, sorry, circular economy group out of the Netherlands. That's the data that feeds into the World Economic Forum, the UN and stuff like that. That 100 gigatons splits, no, no, no surprise, about 50-50 between the agriculture and manufacturing, right? So I, and those numbers just, you know, I've got them at the top of my head, but they also are, again, reflective of how we have to start looking at this. Because to your point, it is no longer individuals supply chains. It is a value network that has yet to truly be connected. We're still connecting it, right? I mean, you talk about Metcalfe's law and the power of the network correlating to the number of nodes on the network or people in that case, right? But the same thing here with our supply chain network. Until we get all the assets onto the network, we really don't have the true, we're not going to realize the true value, but it exponentially increases as we connect that supply chain for everyone who's involved. However, that's extremely radical thinking, it seems like right now, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I bet you're beating your head against the wall talking to executives and companies going, hey, folks, you no longer are isolated. You got to be thinking collaboratively. You got to start thinking the way the internet was built, which is kind of my background because I was in the in the Silicon Valley for 25 years. But the way the internet was actually built, to me, is a template for collaborative network design and operations. And how do we take some of those principles and apply them to the new, I'll call it value network for lack of a better term. That's what we like to call it, you know. But we've not popularized that. So my question is leading into like. How do you look forward? How, how do you even begin? I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I'm right there with you. I'm, a, I'm an acolyte, if you will. So I'm, I'm, I'm proselytizing your message around value yeah. networks and everything out there. But how, short of the conversation, how do you begin to even engage people and to explain that to them? Because this is, we're, we're big now. We're thinking real big. Yeah, you know, I think that's um, the uh, it's, it's awesome points there, Richard. And and the the last question is, it is easier and easier to find disciples of the new way of thinking <laughs> right. because it is 100% perfectly clear what they have done don't work. Right. Okay. Right. So it's not like they're coming to a digital supply network because it's a better answer. Mm -hmm. What they're doing is they're running from a supply chain that didn't work. Right. And you called it earlier in that statement, a global system. Mm -hmm. I think we could call it a digital supply network. I mm -hmm. think we could call it a digital supply system. Mm -hmm. I think we could call it a digital value network. Mm -hmm. We could call, I mean, there's, there's lots of good words. The one thing that is clear is that the word supply chain mm -hmm. never works. Right. Another thing that's perfectly clear, it's not about a link. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you look at a lot of companies, what they are doing is they are trying to optimize. Notice not yep. optionize. They're trying to optimize their link. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, some companies are saying, okay, we got to go beyond making us the best link. And what we need to do is we move on to become a best supply chain, singular. Mm -hmm. They don't have a chain. They mm -hmm. have chains. Yep. 
They have multiple chains for different products and different services. They have multiple chains. Mm -hmm. And then those chains are made up of a huge number of nodes. Mm -hmm. It's not about making me, my supplier, and my customer work together as at one. Mm -hmm. It's about my end-to-end working as at one. And so I need my supplier, 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 and my customers, customers, customer all working together. Now, that is a system. It's also a network. So use either word you want. And what we need to do is to manage that is we need to have a visibility end-to-end. And so that demands that this has to be done digitally. It cannot be done manually on spreadsheets. We need to have digital information and that information needs to be real-time. We need from the supplier, 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 and the customers, customer, customer, all to have the same view of the entire network. And right. if we all have the same view of the entire network, we could then address problems. Now, yeah. the challenge we have, when we really figure that out around 2015, I would then come to you and say, Richard, I've got it all figured out. Um, here in the next four hours are the 16,000 things you need to work on. Mm-hmm. And you said, Jim, I can't work on 16,000 things in the next four hours. I mean, give me a break. Maybe I can handle 10 things. Mm -hmm. Well, but in the disrupted network, there were 16,000 things that weren't working according to plan. Mm -hmm. So what we said is, wow, we need to handle a lot of these challenges because Richard can't do 16,000 things. And Mm -hmm. so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use artificial intelligence and machine learning to handle 15,990 of those. And then what I'm going to do is say, Richard, here's 10 things you need to address in the next four hours. You said, got it. Mm-hmm. In the next four hours, you go work on those 10 things that are really massive things that cannot be solved. But mm-hmm. what we do is we use AI and ML to solve those other 15,000. What, what happened is people figured out they needed visibility end to end. They got the visibility end to end and they said, holy cow, I've created a nightmare. I've right. got to work 24-7. I need 100 people and we're still not going to be able to get it done. So right. that's when AI and ML really started to play a role. And when that started to play a role, now we can truly manage the entire digital network in a way that's going to allow us to maximize the efficiency and effectiveness, which is where we started back in 2000. And so right. we're back to where we were in a disruptive world. Right. Well, I, so, and, 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 and I think, I mean, again, amazing views. And let me double click on something, which is, and again, to have you expand a little bit and simplify and clarify this, because it's almost like you've got to jettison the the supply chain thinking popularized by Toyota, the Leanway Six, and like you said, I mean, you almost you got to start fresh, right? Yep. But supply chain or value network, whatever you want to call it, moving forward has some characteristics that need to happen that that literally are almost like a playbook for every enterprise. That th- this is like the table stakes, kind of like getting your internet access, right? Yes, you need to do certain things. Have you begun to think about what are those like one, two, three, four things that that the world collectively enterprises driving this need to do with our, you know, evolved supply chain. Digitization is, is kind of a, you know, a catch-all clearly the systems level thinking, you have to start thinking in the, you know, in the global sense, meaning, you know, you are a part of a cohesive global network. You are not alone. And if you don't collaborate, you're going to lose. That's a big shift for people. Like that's a massive shift, right. In the thinking, you know, but again, when you look at the birth of the internet, it was like breathing oxygen. No one even thought about it. That's just how they did it, right? 
but in supply chain that, I mean, I run into this all the time. Like that's, I'm putting my data on a shared platform. Oh my God. Right. Like, well, you have to, otherwise you're never going to be able to see anything. You're always going to be blindsided by things going on in this global network. So you've kind of got digitization, you've got collaboration. I'm kind of leading the witness here a little bit. And then also I think this other thing that again is over here, but is front and center is sustainability, right? The global supply chain is the single largest offender that's causing a lot of the things that we see today that we call, you know, sustainability, environmental issues or climate issues or whatever you want to call them, right? Is driven by the fact that we've really never holistically solved our global value network supply chain together. But now with circularity and thinking it as a closed system, it's like, oh shit, why weren't we doing this before? Because I can create circularity which now also further reduces costs and increases resilience. And I talk about that all the time with circularity. I mean, circularity is not about environmental practices. It's about good business practices, increasing profit margins and reducing risk in your supply chain, right? It just so happens it's great for the environment. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping in this one. But so back to you, mega kind of mega thoughts that supply chain 2.0 or value network 2.0, what I mean, digitization, collaboration, you know, uh, uh, sustainability. What, what are the big things that you kind of, coach people on, you better start thinking in these terms before you even begin into the practical, you know, supply chain solution design. Well, you've hit on several of them, Richard, yeah. and, and <laughs> done, a, done a, a really good job. Um, yeah, if I was the opposing attorney, I would say you're leading the witness, but you're leading me right to water. And so I'm thirsty. So that's, that's, a, that's okay. a great place to go. Cool. But um, the, the key, key, key term here is the issue of collaboration. Right. Okay. We got to stop thinking selfishly about us. Right. Because the fact of the matter is, all what is, if you take all the links before us in the chain and you add up all their costs, what is that? That's my cost of goods sold. Yep. My, if you look at any 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 P and L, the biggest number on that sheet is the cost of goods sold, mm-hmm. and the cost of goods sold is what everyone else does. Is now some companies out there are saying, "I'm going to work with OTIP on time in full, and if you don't get it to me when we've agreed you're going to get it to me, I'm going to fine you." Mm-hmm. I would suggest that's about as intelligent as a guy beating his wife or a woman beating her husband to hope that the marriage will work better. <laughs> Right. How how can you punishing your supplier help you? What we need to do is we need to collaborate and figure out how can we work together to improve this this collaboration. And, and, and when we talk about improving collaboration, that requires orchestration. Mm-hmm. So the, the requirements we need, first of all, we need end-to-end visibility. Mm-hmm. Second of all, we need a single version of the truth. Third, we need to have the ability to use AI and ML to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And then what we need to do is we need to close the gap between planning and execution and make it one. So it's really not that hard once you get your head out of, I'm here to help my company more profitable. I would rather be a an okay company in a great supply network than I would be a great link in a poor supply chain. It's not about, it's it's like football. It's not about how great the quarterback is because the quarterback without an offensive line is laying on his back. And it's so how do they orchestrate 
how do they collaborate to protect the quarterback to get the end open so the quarterback can throw the ball and score a touchdown? Yep. It's it's not about the quarterback. It's about the the, the entire um, ecosystem mm-hmm. of how this process is going to result in providing great service at a good cost to the customer, and, and that's this this entire network thing. So it's a it's a whole different perspective on mm-hmm. the problem that we don't have a choice because the tipping points and the disruptions and the paradigm shifts are here. We need to be able to respond to them and not just try to deal with a point solution and hope one time out of 100 that the that what we've planned for is actually going to occur. So yeah. it's, it's an exciting time to do it. What your comments on the circular um, society and, and what, what's going on with, with the the um, whole um, circular concept. I think of when I think of, of the circular um, it, it practices, I think of the word re. Mm-hmm. Okay? So we're going to reuse, we're going to mm-hmm. repair, we're going to refurbish, we're going to recycle, we're going to mm-hmm. reduce waste, we're going to reduce cost, we're going to reduce greenhouse emissions, we're going to mm-hmm. re- reduce uh, pollution, we're going to mm-hmm. we're going to re something. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so re something is going to have some major impacts on the supply chain because yep. now we're not buying fresh material; we're recycling material. Now mm-hmm. we're not. I, uh, my wife and I went on a cruise recently. We hadn't gone on a cruise for two years because of COVID and so forth. But when we used to go on cruise in the old days, 2019, we probably consumed over a hundred plastic bottles of water on that trip. On every excursion, you take a bottle, you don't bring it back. You have four sips and you leave it in the pocket of of the bus. You you leave it in the pocket of the boat. And so so in in every room, you've got bottles of water everywhere. On this particular cruise, there were no plastic bottles. They gave us these really nice uh, uh, glass bottles for the room. And then they gave every guest a very nice aluminum bottle. And they gave you refilling stations. And they Mm -hmm. refilled the glass bottles for you every day in your room. And Mm -hmm. I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. Look at the the recycled plastic that we, Mm -hmm. we were not using. Okay, mm-hmm. and so we reuse the glass bottles. We reuse the the aluminum thermos they gave us, and and look at the cost savings, right. and look at the impact on all those bottles we didn't have to dispose of. I mean, my goodness, it's it's like this is a big, big, big deal. Right. And for everyone except for the guy that makes the plastic bottle, this is a huge win. Right, right. Well, I I, I wouldn't be doing and, and and again, I'm sitting here looking at the clock. So I'm conscious of the time because we only got a few minutes left, and I definitely want to leave you, you know, allow you some parting thoughts. But you know, I would not be doing justice here if I didn't look forward to it because you also opened the door to, and what you haven't gotten to is again, if I go back to your you know prescient prognostication of 2018 in your video calling out COVID, whether you intended it or not. Now, looking forward, put your Harry Seldon lens on, right? One of the big shocks I see in the future, and I'll tease this question again, is like 3D printing, right? So 3D printing, even though it's still in its nascent stages, but 10 years from now, that will ultimately change how we view supply chain, right? Because it's now we've, we've really altered the manufacturing process to make it a lot more flexible, if you will, blah, 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 blah. Space. We haven't talked about that. Space travel and supply chain extension into the solar system, right? We're already talking about mining rocks and asteroids, and God only knows what that's going to do, right? But again, looking out 10 or 20 years, what do you see in you, through your lens that are really big shocks that might start coming, right, um, from your perspective, especially not only in this decade, but you know, whenever? Well, 
um, uh, once again, a, a question we can go on for yeah. uh, quite some time on. Um, you know, I'm seeing in the short run, I'm seeing tremendous innovation in robotics. Yep. I'm seeing tremendous innovation in drones. Yep. Once the government gets out of the way next July and gets rid of the line of sight, we're going to find the, the real productivity of drones. And it's not going to be by dropping drones, dropping parachutes or coming and landing on Earth. It's going to be through some landing stations that are going to be controlled on a portion of this system. Um, if we're looking at self-driving uh, vehicles, a uh, huge, huge, huge impact. People are concerned that, you know, once every month someone gets killed by a self-driving vehicle. That does happen, and, and that is an issue. But in the process, it saved 5,000 people that didn't get killed by an operator-driven vehicle. And so what we're going to find as we open our minds to drones, to robots, to self-driving, is we're going to get the smart city, mm -hmm. and the smart city is going to be back to the Jetsons. Um, yep. <laughs> the Jetsons is, is what life is going to be about. Um, certainly the things you mentioned about the 3D printing and space travel are gonna be a, a huge implication as we become more diversified where we leave where we live. I mean, if you're living in Chicago, you're going to still have the real original parts that are made in the factory. But but if you're you're living in uh, North Dakota, you don't want to have an inventory of those parts in North Dakota. You're going to print those parts when you need them. Hello. And so 3D printing is going to be extremely viable and uh, a major portion of where we're going. So I kind of take the 3D printing and the space travel and the the topic of drones and, and self-driving vehicles and, and put all that together. And, and, I, and, I, and I, I say, you know, technology is going to be the driver. Yeah. So what I believe we need to do, and uh, in, in the book, Insightful Leadership, the subtitle is Surfing the Waves to Organize Excellence, Organizational Excellence. Surfing the Waves. What does that mean? What that means is I'm sitting on my surfboard and I'm looking at you sitting on the shore. What do I do? Do I keep looking at the shore? No. What I need to do is I need to look over my shoulder and I need to be studying with my foresight the waves. Mm -hmm. And I understand the terrain that I'm in. I'm mm -hmm. looking at the waves. I know how they break. And I look and I say, that first wave back, I'm not going to write. The second wave, oh, look at that. Look at that, Rich. Look at the third wave. See mm -hmm. how it's breaking? Mm -hmm. That wave is disruption that mm -hmm. I can ride. That mm -hmm. disruption is an opportunity. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to prepare myself to mount that wave. Mm -hmm. And I need, first of all, I got to get ahead of the wave. If I don't get ahead of the wave, the wave will come over and will, will knock me down and I'll wind up eating sand. And so I got to get ahead of the wave. I have to get ahead of the wave. And then I need to use innovation and insight to ride that wave. How do I position myself on my board? How do mm -hmm. I position myself on the wave? How do I maximize the power from that wave? And so that power from that wave is the, 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 the handling of the disruption in a way to lead me to competitive advantage. That's what I need to be thinking about. And I ride that wave all to shore and I say, yes, what a great ride. And then what do I do? I get back on the board and I paddle out and I look for the next wave because the waves are coming perpetually and those perpetual waves are perpetual opportunities for us to advance. And that's what we need to do going forward. Jim, 
I'm looking at the clock. I got to wrap, wrap it up here because I committed to you less than an hour. I literally, I'm, I'm biting. I, I'm literally bleeding from my tongue. I'm biting it so hard because there's so much I want to go into. And you just opened up again. My, I mean, there's a book here. You know, there's something, you know, I go, I reference Jared Diamond, Guns, Rooms, and Steel, but there's a look at sort of the business trends. It's an extension of whatever you want, what book you want to pick up, tipping point, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But there's something that you also talk about, these waves, right? These almost perpetual societal business waves, right? And it's the business of learning to read those, learning to ride them effectively, and then, you know, taking all that knowledge you just experienced and going and doing it again, Right. And I think that oh, even circular loop, right? I mean, that's that to me, there's something there that you just outlined a book for again, right? These business trends that we kind of come through. It could correspond to the waves, the black swans, whatever. Anyway, I can keep going. So let me stop. Jim, it has been an absolute pleasure. I hope we can do this again. Um, your insights are amazing. Your career is amazing. And you are just a really, a, 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 from a personality persona perspective, just being around you even virtually is a lot of fun, really engaging. Richard, thanks so much. Great questions. Great talking with you. Look forward to doing it again. Awesome. All the best. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at Requis.com.